0: G'day everyone, I'm Dosh, I'm a fourth year engineering student, and I'll be opening up God's Word. So today's reading is from Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 1. It's on on your outlines if you need it, or if you've got your own Bible, you can use that too. Okay. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers in the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. "'Are you the king of the Jews?' asked Pilate. "'You have said so,' Jesus replied. Chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, "'Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of.' But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested a man called Barabbas was imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. "'Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews?' asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. "'What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews?' Pilate asked him then. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate, but they shouted all the more louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus blogged, <coughs> flogged, and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the Praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, "'Listen, he's calling Elijah.' Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. "'Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down,' he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, He said, surely this man was the son of God.
1: Well, it's nearly Easter again, and uh, judging by the supermarkets, we've been anticipating it since shortly after the end of Christmas. Uh, The Santa Clauses, the stockings, they were barely cleared away before the Easter eggs, the rabbits and the hot cross buns were out on display. And uh, this year my wife and I just gave up on resisting, we decided that we like hot cross buns and so we've been eating hot cross buns since January, uh, because who doesn't like hot cross buns? But below the surface of Easter, with all its uh, colourful wrapped eggs and all the excitement about holidays and days off uni, I I kind of feel like there's something disturbing about it all, Uh, things that once were significant that held families and communities together are sort of dissolved with the universal solvent of commercialism. We make trading hours longer, we get rid of penalty rates so that shops can stay open more so that we can buy more. We build shopping centres with interiors like cathedrals with vaulting ceilings and giant spaces so that you can get lost in buying stuff. Literally lost sometimes. Wandering around and around the shopping centre, wondering which exit uh, entry you came in, trying to find your way back to your car. Wandering around, eternally consuming, with no idea where anything is, and just trying to fill up the emptiness. That might sound a little depressing and a little over the top, but don't take my word for it. Uh, Listen to Prince. Prince, who died last year, I used to begin his shows by saying, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. And I reckon that's a profound insight. uh, A profound insight into what is going on. Because on the surface at a rock concert, it looks fantastic. You've got the loud music, you've got the lights, you've got Prince in his skin-tight costumes. And yet all of it is just about trying to get through this thing called life. Trying to avoid the nagging feeling of meaninglessness, the emptiness. uh, And above all, to avoid that nagging feeling that death is coming. The darkness, the silence, the loneliness, and the judgment of God. We try to drown it out with concerts, with Netflix, and with the pseudo-friendships of Facebook. And yet death is there, and it's always ugly. I once heard a preacher say that when he talks to people, they often talk about death as though it's a, a gentle sort of thing, like a, a ship slowly drifting across the horizon, drifting down out of sight until finally it's gone. He said in his experience of visiting dying people, it's much more like a ship that's on fire burning to the waterline. With people screaming and cursing as they throw themselves in the, into the water, slipping below the surface in terror. Death is never pretty, and yet it's always there. And it was there for Jesus too on that first Easter. And it wasn't pretty for him either. You can see the start of it there in verse 1 of Mark's account in chapter 15. Like most of these things, Jesus has been arrested in the middle of the night and hauled away. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You've said so, Jesus replied. And the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. And things looked pretty grim for Jesus. hauled away in the middle of the night, dragged before this court, dragged before the religious leaders who were determined to condemn him and handed over to the Roman governor, Pilate, charged with treason. And he seized the jaws of death opening before him. Pilate questions Jesus about the charge. Uh, The religious authorities have presented Jesus to Pilate as a traitor because he's claimed to be the Messiah. Of course, that means nothing to Pilate, so they translate it for him, the king of the Jews. This guy is a rebel, an insurrectionist, a traitor against Caesar. It's a scary charge because the penalty for treason has always been death. And yet Jesus refuses to answer. He says to the charge, you've said so. And he refuses to say any more. And Pilate is understandably amazed. I mean, what person facing death doesn't even try to defend himself? I mean, it's not like Jesus is pleading the Fifth Amendment to avoid incriminating himself. If he doesn't answer, he's a goner. And if you've read the rest of Mark's gospel, you'd be pretty amazed too that Jesus here is silent because Jesus is the kind of guy who is always there with the immediate answer, the brilliant question. Always able to turn back every accusation on his accusers, Razor sharp, lightning quick. And yet, here, there's nothing. Just silence. On the surface, Jesus' silence is amazing. But below the surface, there's something far more amazing going on. Because 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied about a servant of God who had come. Let me read a bit of it for you from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. See what Jesus is doing here? In his unexpected silence, his amazing silence, he's actually echoing one of the most famous passages from one of Israel's most famous prophets. And in doing so, he shows that his death is not just an unfortunate series of events. He's not just another little guy crushed by the system. Instead, he's the one who is pierced for our transgressions, who is crushed for our iniquities. On the surface, he goes to his death as a traitor. But below the surface, he's going to death for the traitors. See the reality of that in the very next verses, because Mark tells us in verse 6 that it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And Pilate, of course, being a politician, seized the opportunity to have his cake and eat it too. This is a brilliant opportunity. He can declare Jesus guilty and satisfy the crowd... And then pardon him, as is his custom at Passover, and he can assuage his own conscience. It's brilliant. It's a genius plan. And yet it doesn't work. Verse 9. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Jesus dies so that Barabbas might go free. But Parabbas isn't the only traitor here, is he? Because we're all traitors. We've all turned our backs on God. We've all rebelled against the king of the universe and set ourselves up as though we're the centre of the universe. Don't tell me what to do. I'm the boss around here. I can do whatever I like. If it feels good, I can do it. That's what the sheep say as they wander complacently away from the shepherd and into the jaws of the wolf of death. We're familiar with the idea of someone paying the fine for us. You get a speeding fine and if your parents are kind and they love you and they've got enough money, they pay for you. You could even imagine a policeman upholding the law by pulling over his own son or daughter, charging them with speeding and then saying, don't worry, love, don't worry, mate, I'll pay for it. But Jesus doesn't just pay the fine for us. We're charged with treason. The sentence isn't a few hundred dollars. It's death. And so he steps in and takes it himself. The very one we've rebelled against takes our punishment in our place. So now the shepherd, who could have left us to wander off who could have put us to death himself, stands silently facing the open mouth of death, about to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the lamb who is sacrificed for the sins of his people. On the surface, Jesus' silence just makes no sense. But below the surface... His silence speaks volumes. But there's more going on below the surface than that. You may remember that in 1995, Alanis Morissette released the song Ironic on her Jagged Little Pill album. I don't know if you're too young to remember that. (laughs) Let me read you some lines from it. An old man turned 98. He won the lottery and died the next day. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon, two minutes too late. And isn't it isn't ironic, don't you think? A little too ironic. And yeah, I really do think. And for 22 years, she's had to live with people pointing out the fact that nothing in the song is ironic. None of the situations she describes are actually ironic. Which, as various people have pointed out, is kind of ironic. So I don't know whether she's stupid or a genius. Uh, In reality, irony is about communicating the real significance of something by using what looks like the opposite on the surface. And Mark uses multiple layers of irony to help us see what's going on below the surface. What's happening at Jesus' crucifixion? And we see it especially in the next section, uh, from verse 16 onwards. Because the soldiers think that it's hysterical that Jesus is here charged with being the king of the Jews. Because he's not like any king they've ever seen. He's like kind of dirty and smelly and really a peasant. No army, no palace, no slaves, no roads, no crown. And so they decide to set things right. To provide a proper coronation for the king of the Jews. So they take him away into the palace. This is where you belong, great one. And here are we, your loyal subjects, your army, waiting here for you. To do as you would have us do. So verse 17, they put a purple robe on him. Purple's a royal colour, but in all likelihood, they're chucking a horse blanket over him. They twist together a crown of thorns and set it on him. Here you are, your majesty, great one. And they begin to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. It's a coronation ceremony. They're striking him with the scepter. They're anointing him by spitting on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And by pretending that Jesus is a king, they show what they really think of him. He's nothing. He's dirt. Can't even carry his own cross. And they crucify him. And at the top of the cross, they nail the charge against him, the King of the Jews. The crowds pass by taunting him as well. Verse 31 He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. The soldiers, the crowds, they think they're being ironic. course the son of a Galilean carpenter isn't the king of the Jews. What a joke! But Mark actually knows that it's no joke. The crowd, they just see the surface. But Mark, he sees what God is doing below the surface. He sees that Jesus really is the king. And his death is in fact his coronation. It's the place where we see him at his most glorious Not in pomp and splendour like Caesar, but in humility, laying down his life for his people. Saving them, even as they taunt him to save himself. At what looks like his least kingly moment, Jesus is actually at his most kingly. He may not look like a noble, but in laying down his life for others, he shows true nobility. In refusing to be the king that they want, he becomes the king that they need. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? But actually, isn't that the sort of king that you want? Not a king who's going to lord it over you, crush you, humiliate you, but one who is truly gracious and noble who allowed himself to be crushed for you. Isn't actually what Jesus does on the cross better than anything you've ever done? Has anything you've ever done even come close to this? Isn't Jesus, in fact, a better king for your life than you will ever be? Verse 33, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, people see what's on the surface. And what's going on below it? They're very different. We're told in verse 35 that when some of those standing near heard Jesus call out, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. It's like, oh, this is getting good. This guy's going nuts. Man, this is awesome. He's calling Elijah to come and help him. You know, let's, let's keep this guy alive. Get this man some Gatorade. Get me some popcorn. Let's see what happens. The crowd just see the surface. They misunderstand Jesus' cry in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, as a cry to Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. But Jesus doesn't mean Elijah, Elijah. He means, my God, my God. Lama Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? Others have thought Jesus means God really has forsaken him. And that's closer to the truth, but it's still not really getting below the surface. Yes, Jesus does feel like God has abandoned him. God has, in a sense, turned his back on him. Like we saw from Isaiah 53, Jesus is taking our punishment in our place. He's taking God's anger on himself. But we won't really grasp what's going on. We won't really get below the surface. Unless we realise that Jesus is actually quoting the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries, from my cries of anguish. And as you keep reading that Psalm, Psalm 22, written by David, the Messiah, the King of Israel, a thousand years before Jesus you realise that it's all about Jesus. A thousand years before he was born. But it's all about him. It's all about his death. Let me read you a bit more of it. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment the very things that happen a thousand years later on that hill outside Jerusalem, surrounded by those who are hostile against him, a pack of villains who pierce his hands and his feet, who divide his clothes among them and cast lots for his garment, just as the soldiers do at the foot of the cross. And yet it doesn't end there, because the psalm goes on. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. (coughs) You who fear the Lord, praise him. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly, Before those who fear you, I will fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and return to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Yes, Jesus' cry is a cry of anguish. It's not a cry of despair. It's the cry of the king who is laid in the dust of death but who will will rise to be worshipped by those who go down to the dust. The suffering servant who could have kept himself alive, but gave up his life so that those who cannot keep themselves alive might live. It's the cry of the Son of God who feels abandoned by his Father, yet knows that he isn't. It's the cry of a man going through hell for us, yet confident that God will bring him out victorious. There's much more going on than we see on the surface. And yet, when you get below the surface, you grasp what is really going on. Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Things look different below the surface, don't they? Beneath the commercial festivities of Easter, the holidays, the chocolate, the hot cross buns, there's the lurking fear that life might not be worth living. That if I pause too long, If I sit too long in silence, if I'm not endlessly distracted, I might be overwhelmed. That I might slip below the surface into the darkness, into the silence, into the loneliness of death, drowning in the meaningless of life. But Mark is showing us that there is another way. That if you'll only look below the surface of that first Easter, that you'll see something very different and something much better. That Jesus is not just another man, just another little guy crushed by the system, but that he is the suffering servant promised through Isaiah 700 years earlier. He really is the king of the Jews. He really is the son of God who felt the pain of his father turning his back on him so that we who turned our backs on the Father, might become the children of God. That if you look below the surface of Jesus' death, what you'll find is eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your kindness and mercy and love towards us, that you would send your only Son to die in our place, to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Father, we pray that you would enable us to look to Jesus as the true king who died to save us, that we might be his people, that we might be your children. Amen.